Today we have the privilege of beginning a year-long study. We're going to be working through Ephesians chapter 2 on the second Sunday of every month. This is a text that is addressed to Christians in the city of Ephesus. In chapter 1, Paul addresses these believers, and this was a letter that was likely then circulated throughout that region um, to the believers in other churches as well. And he announces a, a blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. And he goes on to express how we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Following this, Paul turns in verse 15 to give thanks for their faith in the Lord Jesus and your love, he says, toward all the saints. Verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And this is his prayer then, verses 17 through to the end of chapter 1. In that prayer, Paul prays that we would have the eyes of our hearts, the eyes of your hearts enlightened, so that we would see and know the hope that He has called you to, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. And verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might. He goes on in the next verses to describe the power of God at work in Christ, raising Him from the dead, giving Him all authority, putting all things under His feet. And now, we come to chapter 2, where Paul instructs us in the, the story of the Christian. The story of our sin and God's mercy our deadness and God's power to make us alive. And so in one sense, this chapter is an answer to that prayer that through this explanation, this teaching of the gospel story, that we would come to see these things that Paul has been praying for, for the believers. That we are being instructed about what Martin Lloyd-Jones termed the largeness and the greatness and the majesty of this wonderful salvation. The, the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, as Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. This is good news. But it begins in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, with words that many do not wish to hear. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. 
with these words, the people of God are reminded of our former state. The condition in which we lived our lives and had our being. It is not popular today. Not in the world and not in many churches to be told you were dead in your sins. But nonetheless, these are words that need to be said and understood. For without them, we would not know the mercy or power of God. Our text reads, beginning in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In these verses, the believers in Ephesus are being instructed, being reminded of their former state. The first verse, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Or as some translations put it, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And we see in this verse, this first verse, that the believer's former state was firstly one of death brought about by sin. This opening phrase, and you were, or more literally, and you being dead in your trespasses and sins, this phrase instructs us that we were in a state of death. And that sin is the means by which death came. That word in I think is better translated by or through that it is through sin that death came. This is borne out in the scriptures from the very beginning. Death has been the lot of humankind ever since Adam and Eve broke the commandment that God gave them in Genesis 2 verse 17. You remember what he said in the garden? He said, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The Lord laid out a, a command. And he explained the consequences of breaking his command of rebelling against Him. And the rest of the story, Adam and Eve ate the fruit, listening to the lie of the serpent, makes it clear that it was indeed through the trespass 
the law-breaking of Adam, that death came just as God had warned. As He said that it would be if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When Paul speaks of this to the church in Rome, he says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin. How do we account for sin? Sin came into the world through Adam. And as a result of that sin, just as God had said, death came through sin. And the conclusion is, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Through the sin of Adam, all died. The sentence of death is upon humanity. Can anyone be said to escape this sentence of death? We are told by the Apostle Paul in that verse, death spread to all men because all sinned. Can we really say all sinned? Really? Listen to what the Apostle Paul said two chapters earlier in his, in his uh, gospel explanation to the church in Rome. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Paul says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And the verses that follow continue to give this description of, of the from head to toe, as it were, the person in sin, feet swift to shed blood, a lips like a viper that bites, and so on. The point that is being made by Paul as he quotes these scriptures, the word of God about our condition. is that no one is righteous and good. Sin is like a terrible disease ravishing the whole of the person, affecting every part. To many people, this sounds very extreme. How could one one say that a person 
really is so sinful. That sin is affecting my feet and my walk and my talk from my very heart. But it is what the Lord tells us about humanity. All of us apart from His work in our lives. All sin and all die. So that if there were such a thing as a coroner's report in heaven, the cause of death would be written dead through trespasses and sins. The realm in which we live was one of death. Death, not only in the sense that we all will one day die, but also in that we, like Adam and Eve, were separated from God, the life giver. The angels with his flaming sword was put between mankind. And the garden. We will talk more. Next month as we look at verses four and five. About some of the implications. Of that statement that we. Were dead. But that is the, the, the summary statement of the human condition. The summary statement of who we once were apart from the grace of God. Secondly, we find that the believer's former state was one of conformity to the world, the devil, and our own desires. The believer's former state was one of conformity to the world, the devil, and our own desires. Now we are going to look at each one of those things, and we're going to begin by reading verse uh, 2 of our text, in which, now this is referring to uh, back to sins, trespasses and sins, In your sins, you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The walk, that is to say the way of life, the day-to-day habits of humanity dead through sins, is firstly in conformity with the world. Now literally that word following that occurs twice in our text is according to. That is in, in, uh, in conformity with or in like manner to the world and the prince of the power of the air. That is why I use the word conformity to. So we read 
according to or in conformity with the age or the course of this world. The aeon or the age, the era of this world in in time, we live in conformity with the ways of the world as opposed to the ways of God. Doing whatever is fashionable, whatever is acceptable with the rest of the world. And there is is a a temporal aspect to this, an in-time aspect to this this phrase that there is, in, in a sense, a focus upon this present age and what is valued by the world, the cultures around us. There is a, a, a blindness to the age to come, to the things that God values and the things that God cares about. So, for example, the Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, for all that is in the world, and he goes on to explain what is in the world, the desires of the flesh, that is the things that the body wants, the desires of the eyes, the things that look good to us, and, and pride of life. The sort of pride that looks not to God and depends not upon the Lord, but takes pride in in oneself and one's power and one's looks and one's influence. These things are not from the Father, but is from the world. See, when God does not reign in a person's life, when His Spirit is not present, they conform to the world's mold. We do what seems best to us. We do what looks good to others. We take pride in such things. But the Apostle John makes clear in the following verse, First John chapter 2, verse 17, that, that these things will pass away. And it is the one who does the will of God who abides forever. The one who makes this world their, their home, their all, seeks to make their own kingdom of it, will pass away with the world. So there is in our former condition, a state of, of living in conformity to the world. Living for the things of this world. Not according to God and His ways. Secondly, the dead man walks in conformity to or under the rule of Satan who is described here in verse 2 as the prince who rules over the realm of the air, 
Now the kingdom of the demonic was associated with the, the air, that realm. Not talking about up in the sky like birds, but the unseen. And this, this realm, which is in some translations translated as the power of, more properly refers to the domain or the, the proper realm of this ruler. He has a confinement. He is confined to and he is ruler over the realm of the air. This realm is described in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Our eyes are opened to see the, the fight that Christians face. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, Ephesians 2, or 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so here, the prince of demons is described as now working in the sons of disobedience. Those who have followed after their ruler, the devil, in defying God's rule. Those who exchanged the uh, authority of God and his gracious rule for the liar, that murderer, the devil. Humanity's natural state as a result of sin is to live under the influence of the devil and his his angels. Jesus pulled no punches when he told the Pharisees in John chapter 8, verse 44, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a, a liar and the father of lies. Jesus is saying, as of your father, not, a, not of natural descent, as though we are literally children of the devil, but by our deeds, by our, our very uh, out of our very own character, we follow, we followed in his ways. Dead in our sins, we followed not only the thinking of this present world, but also the devil. We danced to his tune, as it were, and all the while did not realize where we were being taken. Thirdly, we lived according to our own desires. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived 
in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. The thing that drove all of us, that defined all of us, here Paul is including his own self, was living in the passions or the desires of our flesh. And not merely thinking about, but actively carrying out, doing what we wanted. The words body and mind are descriptive, again, of the the whole person. There is a sense in which there is a both, both an almost instinctual element to this. This is what we want. We're going to do it. But there is also the element of the, the mind, the, the thinking, the, our rationality, our will. Seeking to do what thou wilt. This is to say that our whole self, our body, our mind, our our will, our thinking, is bent towards doing what we want. The Apostle James described the downward spiral of sin this way. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And here he's speaking in a pastoral context to believers that they would would not accuse God of, of causing them to sin. They would recognize the pathway towards Uh, sin. He says this in James chapter 1 beginning in verse 14. But each person very specific not no exceptions here each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. There is something that we want. It looks good as it was with Eve when she looked at the tree and she saw that it was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it could perhaps make one wise. And so she waited out in her mind and went with that desire. Let's see what verse 15 of James chapter 1 says. Then desire, when it has conceived, so it it is present there, that there is then a giving birth to, to sin. When that desire is left unchecked, undealt with. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Desire is conceived, sin is birthed, 
And when sin is fully grown, the result is death for that person. The depth of our sin is such that none of us can blame the world or the devil for our own sins. Or God. It is our sin. It is what we wanted. Consciously. To do what we pleased. Regardless of what God said. And the end result. Is death. Now this brings us to the next truth that is given to us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. And that is that the believer's former state was destined for wrath or deserving of wrath. Verse 3 continues, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By nature, that is to say, by virtue of who we are. By virtue of our natural origin, this is our natural state that we are talking of here. We are children purposed or destined for wrath. Some argue, and there, there are certainly scriptural arguments for this, and grammatical ones, but some would say that the phrase should be taken as essentially the same as sons of disobedience. That is, it's parallel to. They are indeed parallel terms in one sense. The phrase sons of disobedience is clearly uh, referring to being characterized by disobedience characterized by rebellion, just as their father, the devil, just as the prince of the power of the air. Now, it certainly could mean that when we say children of wrath. But I believe the weight of the biblical evidence favors a, a translation deserving of or destined for wrath. Specifically, the wrath of God. When you do a study of the term orge, or wrath, this particular word, 31 out of 36 times it is used to describe the wrath of God. So the weight of the evidence lies on that scale. That when we're talking about wrath, there is a sense in which there is a human wrath and anger. But other words are generally used to describe that. So this is a word that is used to describe the wrath of God. But secondly, the context of Ephesians bears witness to this sense of the word. Speaking of, of the wrath of God. Being deserving of it. In Ephesians chapter 5 or 6, which is repeated almost word for word in the letter to the Colossians. In chapter 3, verse 6. But let me read to you Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 6. Paul writes, 
Let no one deceive you with empty words. So don't be, be fooled by words that sound good but are empty. For because of these things, uh, he, he has described sin for us. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Interesting, we have the wrath of God, wrath, and we have the sons of disobedience. Our word from before in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. Paul takes the term that he uses in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, sons of disobedience, and he says that because of these things, because of these, these sins that the sons of disobedience have done, because of their rebellion against God, the wrath of God comes upon them. I believe that this is simply another way of saying that the sons of disobedience are what Paul called them earlier, children of wrath. That is, that they have a, a relationship with wrath rather than with God. That rather than having a close relationship with their God, the sinner who has not repented will be said as being a child or having a relation to the wrath of God. And that relation, we're told in Ephesians 5 verse 6, is that the wrath of God comes upon, it is, it is the proper destiny, it is what is deserving of the person who has rejected God and has rebelled against Him. Jesus said the very same when He said in John chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, whoever believes in Him, whoever believes in the Son of God, whom God sent in His great love for the world, whoever believes in Him is not condemned. He uses a legal term there. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Condemned or consigned to the just punishment of God. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So what have we learned? We have learned that the Christian was dead through sin, living in conformity to the world, the devil, and their own lusts, destined for wrath, or if you prefer, deserving of it. And lastly, was like the rest. As the ESV translates the text, and you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In other words, we are being told here, you were like everyone else. No different from the pagan neighbor. Or the Jew who had rejected their Messiah. All that is described here can be said of every person. 
apart from the mercy of God that Paul goes on to speak of. Dead in sins, living in conformity to the world, the devil and our own lusts, deserving of wrath. This is our state apart from the mercy of God. What do we make of this? Well, I want to suggest to you, first of all, three falsehoods that are exposed as lies, as untruths. The first is that that lie that man is neutral or morally good by nature. By nature, Paul says, you were children of wrath. Our natural state was dead through the trespasses and sins in which we walked. Descriptions, that some of which we read in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, and in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 and following make plain to us that we cannot say I am neutral before God. I will get by okay by my works. I will get by. I'm not that bad. This is a lie that many believe today. We will do almost anything to justify our sin. To act as though it comes from outside of us. As though we could blame, blame others. But all people have sinned and deserve the punishment of God. We need to see who we were. And the lost need to see who they are apart from the grace of God, that we are sinners all. We need the mercy of God. That it is His gracious favor, not something that we deserved, not something that we could claim a legal loophole on the day of judgment to say, well, that might apply to most people, but not to me. 
terms used here to describe our natural state are used to describe all humanity. So don't be afraid to go here when you begin. If you question your sin or if someone else questions, I'm not really a sinner, I'm a good person. Take them to what the Word of God has to say. Remind yourself of what God says about your condition apart from Christ. <clears throat> the false gospel that only speaks cheerful words and leaves out any mention of sin, death, and God's wrath isn't the gospel revealed to the apostles. It does little good to offer the gospel of Christ crucified for sinners and raised to life when the person is blind to their condition or content in their sin. In the same way, it would be of no use to speak with passion about a cure for cancer. It's not going to have any impact on the patient if they don't believe they have that condition. The doctor in such a case must first tell them of their true condition. And if need be, convince them. Get out some test results, etc. So that they will take the medicine that they need. At times, we will need that as well. For there is a third falsehood that is here exposed. That is the hypocrite who takes pride in himself, forgetting his former condition. The person who says, I am a Christian, must also be able to say, there but for the grace of God go I. I was no better. I too was far from God. I was self-absorbed. I lived for my own lusts. And I was deserving of God's wrath, God's judgment. Brothers and sisters, can you say, I was dead in sins and deserving of wrath? I too did not deserve mercy. If we cannot say that, our pride blinds us. If you cannot say that, you cannot look face to face in the mirror of God's law and acknowledge, I was utterly undeserving to be called God's child. To have any relationship of, of favor and blessing before God. And you are blind. Blinded by your sin. For the apostle writes plainly. But you were. You once lived. You once lived. 
like the rest. No exceptions. It is good to be able to acknowledge with complete honesty who we are without our Lord and Savior. And not to sugarcoat that. That's a dangerous thing to sugarcoat. If these are are falsehoods to avoid, what are some points of application? Firstly, repentance and faith for the unsaved. If you have listened to this message and you find yourself that, that you recognize yourself apart from the grace and mercy of God and that you have not called upon the Lord Jesus Christ for mercy, then do so today. God's mercy is our only plea and the, the rest of the story is that God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And this too may be your state through faith in Christ. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved utterly from that terrible condition that you find yourself in. Secondly, humble gratitude is the response of the one who knows the kindness of God. I hope that with every point that you heard, you are thankful to the Lord and you are humbled to know how gracious God has been to you. How He has been so merciful to us. And this is something that ought to be fostered daily that we would remember the mercy of God. Think on your former state this week. Read a text like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, and thank God for rescuing you in His mercy. Rejoice with great joy in the salvation of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Two final points of application. I hope this brings great sorrow to your heart. Sorrow over the destiny of mankind and zeal to warn people about their current state. 
If you can read such verses, if you can encounter the living word of God that declares to you the state in which you once lived and you do not grieve and mourn and care about the lost, do you understand truly the mercy of God in your own life? There are times when we become numb, we become accustomed to these things. Oh, sin, sinner, um, death, you know. Oh, judgment. We hear these words. But we do not grieve. We are not passionate about warning people. Telling people of their need for God. Do you weep for the lost and love enough to sound like a fool speaking about sin? Speaking about death? And the destiny of the wicked. You love them enough to tell them these things. So that they might receive the mercy of God. Secondly. Do you sing for joy to God. For his mercy. When we understand the depth of our sin and misery when we see the stark unflattering reality of our sinful state the Lord is able to open our eyes to see the magnitude of the mercy of God to see Christ as our only hope and our great joy As the world dismisses sin and the wrath of God and busies themselves trying to ignore death, we need to hear the words, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins all the more. For only in view of our sin do we truly see the goodness of God.